everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we could not be more thrilled about the guests that we have today. We have the wonderful Anthony Miller joining us on Mormonish. How are you, Anthony? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me this evening. Oh, we are just so, I want to use four or five so's. So, 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 so excited <laughs> to <laughs> have you. you on the episode tonight. We have wanted to talk to you for quite a long time. So this is just wonderful. We really appreciate you being here. So I'm going to start out by reading Anthony's bio, and then we will just jump right in. Um, Anthony Miller has been a frequent podcast guest and speaker on topics related to faith crisis, community, relationships, and about life after deconstruction. He shared his personal story on Mormon Stories in August of 2019, and last year, in 2022, he shared his story in a TEDx talk under the title, Thriving and Building Community After a Faith Crisis. I'm guessing most of our viewers have seen this. <laughs> Anthony created and co-leads a Thrive Mormon Spectrum group in Billings, Montana, where he lives in a mixed-faith marriage. He recently launched a new podcast called life after deconstruction. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank uh, this, you. Is, this is going to be wonderful. So uh, the reason I got so excited about that TEDx talk is you've seen that, Landon. Isn't that right? Oh, that that's that's how I came to know Anthony was I, I yeah. saw that TED Talks. I just fell in love with uh, with it and and with you. It was it it, it encapsulated everything I went through uh, in, in just such a sweet manner i was just the whole way through as you were going through i was just going yes that's what i happened oh that's what happened to me oh i felt that way and so i just related to it so much uh and so i could see why it had so many views and everybody i mean you just you just blew up overnight when everyone saw that i think because it, it i think so many people could relate to to what you went through thanks it, it was a pretty vulnerable thing to do i mean um the backstory of my TEDx talk is um, before COVID happened, I got invited to participate in TEDx billings and I talked about a couple of the things that I could talk about. And one of the things that I said is that I went through an existential faith and identity crisis uh, back in 2016. And um, out of that built, built uh, and co-lead a support group in billings. And they said, that's what we want you to talk about because the theme of our TEDx billings is about supporting and building people in our community. And so it got delayed because of COVID. And I spent a lot of time, many, many hours writing my talk. And I wanted to walk people through what the experience was, but how I wrote it was I explained what happened instead of walk them through the experience. And I got close to when it would actually happen, which was March 5th of a year ago. And um, within about a month, maybe a month and a half before I shared, I just really wasn't happy with it, you know, explaining what elevation emotion is and explaining enmeshment and explaining the illusory truth effect and talking about what it is like to experience depression and disassociation and even suicidal ideation. And I shared it with a, one of my friends and he's like, Anthony, this is a little bit, am I allowed to cuss on this channel? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is a little bit bullshit, Anthony, because 
this isn't going to do what you need it to do. What you need to do was his feedback is you need to take people by the hand and walk them through what it is. So don't explain that you experienced disassociation, explain that you didn't fully recognize the person in the mirror. Don't, ex don't explain what the dark night of the soul is. Walk them through what that experience is. And, and he was right. And that was a difficult thing to do. And so over the few weeks before I gave my TED talk, um, I rewrote the whole thing. And it was, it was, and I, and you saw, I relived some of the trauma of my faith crisis on the stage in front of everyone. But um, a few things that people don't maybe don't recognize initially uh, when they see my TED talk, other than that they saw that I relived some of the trauma on the stage of my faith crisis is um, uh, one thing is I only use the word Mormon in the very first sentence because I wanted my TED talk to be more universal about the experience of an existential crisis, whether it's a faith crisis or an identity crisis, whatever it is. A couple other things is, uh, Rebecca, maybe you notice, maybe you notice, Landon, is that in my TED talk, the hero, my heroes are women. And uh, my mother was my hero. Um, the woman who had me read her journal entry where I felt like I received an answer to prayer about the meaning of my life was a hero. Um, my wife was my hero. Lindsay Hanson Park was one of my heroes. Cheryl Renshaw was a hero. Um, and the person that co-leads our local group is a woman and she's a hero too. And so uh, that kind of stood out. But in the end, uh, I really was concerned that I would have a big vulnerability hangover and um, the reactions that I got from people eliminated, eliminated that because so many people expressed that I gave voice to their own personal experience inside the church, Baptists, Catholics, other people. Um, it, it was pretty touching. And so in the end, it was fully worth doing. So that's some of the backstory about it. No, I, I love that because that was going to be one of my questions. Please share the backstory on how that even came about. And and I think you're absolutely correct that it's it's a universal understanding of what, what that means because my story is kind of different. I never had an existential crisis or a dark night of the soul or a shelf crash, crashing. I was raised in by such Orthodox Mormons that I always knew all this crazy information and I was PIMO since birth. I tell everybody that. So I'm always very empathetic to people like my co-host Landon, who went through the dark night of the soul. But, but I even mentioned to him yesterday that having watched your TED talk, I felt like I understand so much more now. I mean, I understood, I think, intellectually what was happening, but to see, like you said, almost going through it right there on the stage, I said to Landon... I really, I understand now. I mean, it's just absolutely devastating in every fiber of your being, if I can say that. So I think that this is, um, it's it's amazing for people to be able to watch this, to have an understanding. And like you said, you never said this is a Mormon crisis. This is, this is a crisis of the soul, a crisis of the self, and it can be brought on by so many different things. And the way that you just walked everybody through it like that, so much empathy, I think, for people watching that and understanding. Also a sense that people were heard if, if it happened to them. Like Landon, I mean, talk a little more, Landon, about what you thought. He, we actually were watching it together and he's like, this is me. This is what happened to me. Well, our, our, 
our paths were very parallel, happened almost the same time. And uh, it's interesting that you that you pointed out because I, I didn't catch that uh, the heroes in your story were all women, uh, but I, I did key in uh, that your wife uh, was one that that consoled you a lot during it, which is uh, which keyed me in real quick because that that's a difficult one if your wife's a believing member. Uh, that she can console you during that because it's just as devastating for her at that time as it is for you because uh, I had that same thing and when I you know when I told my wife she was devastated um, uh, probably I think she was more devastated than me uh, because you realize that she sees that oh she she sees I'm losing my eternal family when I when I let her know so I I could see that when she was there consoling you I knew how devastating that was for her. So I saw her as that hero in that story. So I did clue in on that one. And then the lady who came uh, that happened to be in town when you were looking out and reaching out for somebody to to talk to, I looked for that somebody for, for three years. I, could, I, I was like, I can't find anybody to talk to. I can't find anybody. And for me, I found that uh, when I was... Uh, uh, I was on Reddit and I found somebody who uh, was posting that they wanted to start a, a post-Mormon book club. And was there anyone that wanted to join? And I was like, this is what I've been looking for. And for me, that was Rebecca. And so <laughs> my heroes were also women. And and so many of the people in the post-Mormon experience that I've been through, that I've got through with, have also been women. And I think there's just something I, for for me, it's women seem to be a little easier to talk to about these things. I think I think there are men out there that can do that, and that's one of the reasons why when I heard your story, that was one of the first times I'd actually heard a. Here's another man who is expressing the same thing I went through, so I was able to bond with you somewhat in that TED talk. That's why it was so uh, for me to hear that. I was like, oh, there's. There's another dude out there going through that same thing that I'm going through. So I, I really bonded over that from, from that standpoint. Well, I, I really appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. What a couple things that I've noticed over the years. So my faith crisis happened in 2016. Uh, and so it's like, it was April 29th of 2016. So it'll be seven years uh, within about a month now. And um, one th a couple of things that I've noticed is, um, and this is an overgeneralization, but it, it is somewhat representative, is that women in the church uh, have, I think, potentially a greater propensity for nuance because they're already dealing with some of the messiness of, you know, not not being treated fully equal in terms of how decisions are made. Like it was just only in recent history where, where the ward council planned sacrament meetings. And before that sacrament meetings were always just planned by the bishopric. There wasn't really any input from women, um, you know, about topics or who might speak or things like that. Um, and things like polygamy, uh, other messiness of having a child who maybe isn't fully a believer, those kinds of things. It, it seems to me that, that, and again, this is an overgeneralization, but I think it's representative is that women uh, have more opportunities to develop nuance, uh, e even as faithful believers, 
And so uh, I think there is something to when they process a, a faith transition that they're bringing some extra to the table of having put in the work of nuance and differentiation and holding space for differentiated beliefs um, that maybe men don't have sometimes as much opportunity to experience in the church. I I, I agree with that. I, I think uh, women can stay in that nuanced position a little longer and develop it a little longer too. I think I, I found in my faith transition, uh, I got called out earlier than I wanted to uh, simply because, you know, I, I held the priesthood. And I think that's one advantage, uh, one blessing of not holding the priesthood is you can hold that nuance uh, uh, and you can hold that nuance position uh, because, you know, I got to the position where my, my boys were getting to the age where they were going to priesthood advance. And I, I told the Bishop and then it got to the point where, uh, he said, my boys were going to advance in the priesthood. And I was like, I, I can't do it. And I, I didn't want to tell my boys because, you know, once, once you tell them, you can't untell them. And I was forced to basically say, I can't do it. And then the questions come up, well, why can't you do it? And so I think, I think women have that opportunity to hold that space longer because because they don't hold the priesthood, uh, whereas men get called out on it, maybe before you're ready to. And that, that makes you, you know, you have to show your cards before you're ready sometimes. And that can get you angry or turn you, you, you know, a, a little more bitter sometimes, maybe sooner than you want to. And, yeah, no, and that's again, a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point, because you're outed, basically, whereas women, I wasn't outed until I did not attend the temple with my son when he was going on his mission. You know, that's the big out when the mom doesn't go to the temple and the son's headed on the mission, there's something going on with the mom, you know? So you're right. There's yeah. so many little milestones where if you don't participate, yeah. it definitely says something about you. So very good another, point. Another dynamic that I've seen uh, over, over the years is that people who are naturally introverted, um, they seem to have a propensity to be able to hold uh, some differentiation and nuance uh, because maybe they spent their life sitting in a Sunday school class where somebody would say some crazy, like super crazy town thing. And as, as an introvert, maybe they would look, look at that conversation. They go, well, that's interesting that they would think that, but they don't really, necessarily always feel like they need to raise their hand and push back on something. And uh, again, over generalizations, everybody's built a little bit different. There's certainly exceptions to these, but um, uh, people who have a natural propensity to be introverts seem to have developed more nuance over time and be able to handle differentiation more. So my wife is an introvert. Uh, and she was, I'm not going to tell her story, but there are a couple of things that she's let me know that it's okay that I explain, um, her, her parents, uh, were what I would call David O. McKay Mormons. And back when David O. McKay was the president of the church, it was pre Joseph Fielding Smith church. There weren't worthiness interviews. The Bishop was like the father of the ward, you know, uh, things weren't like fundamentalist, literalist, Bruce R. McConkie stuff. That that stuff didn't really exist, you know, yet uh, on a broad 
basis in the church. And so um, several years ago, there was a local couple that joined our local uh, Mormon Spectrum support group. And they went inactive when I was high priest group leader. I thought it was like my fault or something like that. And they assured me that that was not the case. Um, but they shared with our group that they grew up as David O. McCain Mormons. And so when, when the more literalist Joseph Fielding Smith, Ezra Taft Benson, Harold B. Lee, Bruce R. McConkie, uh, Boyd K. Packer kind of Mormonism came out with kind of an enmeshment with super right-wing not everyone, but there was a prevalence of John Bircher, super right-wing politics. They never bought into that. And so they lived with a fair amount of nuance in the church as David O. McKay Mormons until they eventually uh, decided to step away from the church uh, in their uh, mid to late fifties as empty nesters. And I went home and I, and I shared that with my wife and she's like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm totally a David O'McKay Mormon. I'm like, how can you be a David O'McKay Mormon? And, <laughs> and she says, well, my parents were David O'McKay Mormons and they raised me as a David O'McKay Mormon. I'm like, so you didn't read like Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon doctrine for family home evening. You know, she's like, no, I don't, I don't even think we had a copy of that in our home. And I'm like, oh, we were in a mixed faith marriage all along. I didn't even know it. Right. So, um, so she's just, has a tremendous amount of insight and grace and uh, and approaches things with beauty and nuance in, in an amazing way because of how her parents raised her. Wow. And I have to say that what you just described, the Bircher Mormons, that was my upbringing. So yeah. I mean, <laughs> book for book and yeah. Skousen, Cleon and Skousen all of that. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. And so that's what I mean when I say as a little kid, I was like, there is just something, this is, this just doesn't, it did not mesh with me at all. And which is why I say I was always Pimo because what I was hearing it at home, just, it just couldn't be that way. And so I always felt that way. So that is, that is fascinating because you're right. You don't have to be in that era. It just depends on how you were raised and what your parents thought. So yeah. that's absolutely fascinating. What are you Landon? <laughs> I, my, my father was actually a convert. So you know, he, 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 he never, I, I wasn't, my, my mother was from kind of a longer stock of Mormons. Uh, so I kind of had a mixed, uh, but they, we, we were probably normal Mormons. Uh, I, my, my grandfather was not a member. Uh, so, you know, I grew up around, uh, uh, drinking grandfather on one side and, uh, you know, uh, Orthodox Mormon on, on the one side, my, my parents, they raised us, but we were pretty normal. So, uh, but my whole family was very believing and very active. And, and so it was, it was a good childhood and everything, you know, I, I, I appreciated my parents and I appreciated the, the community I grew up in. And so I was absolutely devastated when I, when I started finding out the things I found out, but I was just heartbroken when I, when I heard, you know, your story, because mine kind of developed over time. I started finding things and I started going, something's wrong here. And I started mine for, for several years, I was digging in going, something's not right, but yours was almost overnight. It was like you, you, I think you said your son uh, came out as gay and you were trying to deal with that. And then you found the gospel topics essays. And like in one night, you read them all. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, wow, it was, just stab yourself in the heart in one yeah, night. <laughs> it was one long three-day weekend. I'm 
I'm super analytical. Um, that's kind of how I'm built. I, I have a, I own a financial planning firm. I've been in the business for 32 years. I have a couple of graduate degrees related to that. A lot of professional designations. I'm an entrepreneur. I've been a college professor. I've taught finance. I'm that analytical person, right? So, so I had super heavy shelves, including some of the things that are in the gospel topics essays that I had always been led to believe were anti-Mormon lies. But I, I just had accumulated so many things of dissonance, but I, I attributed such a strong meaning to my spiritual experiences that I just shelved, you know, those things in faith. And yeah, that's what it was. Our, our son came out to us as gay. Um, I, uh, my political bias with regard to social issues is that I had been a social libertarian for a very, very long time. Like I think I, I believe that it was helpful for government to stay out of private lives kind of thing. And so when our son came out to us as gay, um, I couldn't shelf that. And I went online to search for resources as how to support our son, uh, somehow being believing, but also not believing that God would want him to live a life completely uh, absent the kinds of comprehensive intimacy and relationship that a married couple shares. And, and I stumbled across the gospel topics essays that weekend. Um, I didn't know what, how to make sense of them. I was in the dark night of the soul. I searched for information on them. I found Mormon think that gave reviews of them and does kind of a takedown of them. And I continued to search and I found Mormon stories and I watched Tyler Glenn's interview and I watched uh, Jeremy Reynolds interview uh, on YouTube. And then I ended up reading the CS letter. It was like three days with almost no sleep. This is all in three days. Yeah. 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 (laughs) All the gospel topics, essays. And then was your wife out of town or was she? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So my daughter, uh, was about to graduate from high school. She was sleeping downstairs and, and I was upstairs in our bedroom. It was, early in the evening, maybe six, seven o'clock. I don't remember the exact time. My wife was down in Utah helping our son move from school year housing to summer term housing because he was going to school year round to get his uh, bachelor's and master's in computer science at Utah State. And uh, he figured it would be a good time to tell my wife that he was gay and uh, and um, who his boyfriend was and stuff like that. And so, so he came out to you first and he then... came, he came out to our wife, to my wife. And then my wife called me and said, you'll never guess what happened. Nelson just came out to us. I'm okay. like, what did you say? And she said, I, I said, it doesn't matter. You might as well have told us that your eyes were blue instead of brown. And I'm like, wow. that's good. Oh, and that's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And, uh, and then I went searching online. So she's down in, in Utah, helping our son move. Uh, and I'm like consuming all this stuff over three days, like, and it was acute. And so she came home to a completely different person. I mean, I, oh, I can't even imagine what she, and, yeah. and how do you even begin to introduce to her what has happened? Uh, I mean, I was, I was afraid I was, I, we had never heard about the essays. Like I didn't know about the essays. I couldn't find anyone in my ward who knew, you know, who had read the essays. My Bishop said he was aware of them, but he hadn't read any of them. 
And um, I was kind of afraid to share this information because I didn't know if people would react to the information like I did. And, and so uh, I wanted her to, I, she was my person and I wanted her to understand my experience. So I wanted to share with her things, but at the same time, I didn't want to share with her things because I didn't know if she would conclude the same thing that I did. It was terrifying. I was going to ask, did you, as soon as she came home, did you share what you found with her? Did you unload on her at that point? I, I, what I found I, or I did. I, I probably, I, I'm pretty sure that, um, before she drove home the following week, I told her that I had stumbled across some stuff and lost my faith. Um, wow. So in one week, she, uh, her son came out and her husband left the church that's well lost lost, lost my faith. faith i can lost yeah. His faith or, or yeah. yeah had a faith life changing yeah. i i can i continued to attend i uh i i i was ward mission leader i was seating a spanish-speaking branch for our stake in our ward uh which eventually became a branch this year um and um i knew that i couldn't teach uh, the gospel essentials class anymore. So I, I, I called my friend who was my Bishop and it was probably eight to 10 days in. And I said, I got to visit with you. I, I, I need to be released. And he wasn't quite sure. Like what did Anthony do something bad or something, you know? And so I met with them at the chapel and I, and I told them, I'm like, I stumbled across these essays and I lost belief. And, and, uh, and he's like, so what, what he's like, I haven't read them. Like what, what is an example of something that was disturbing to you? And I thought, well, I, I don't know how he's going to react to this stuff. I'll, I'll share something that's maybe le- more innocuous, just, not super difficult and so i'm like well there's this essay about how polygamy ended and in the essay and when you read the cited sources and when you read the manifesto like the 1890 manifesto was essentially a fraud because they didn't stop practicing polygamy they didn't stop sealings and and wilford woodruff like actually added another wife after the manifesto like it was essentially a fraud. And he's like, oh yeah, I knew that. I'm a descendant of one of those post-manifesto plural marriages. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? So um, it, it was just, it was just really, really difficult because I was in so much pain. I, it, it was so traumatic to have the meanings of my spiritual experiences shift on me. Um, and my identity and everything was so completely enmeshed with the church, you know, I had planned my life so that in my fifties, I could retire and serve missions for the church for the rest of my life. Um, and, uh, it was, it, it was so traumatic when everything shifted on me that I, it felt like the heavens closed and God ceased to exist on me. And, um, that was extremely painful. I couldn't understand why God wouldn't answer my prayers. Why I couldn't feel the spirit just because I read the essays, you know, like I, I pray, I consume large volumes of scriptures, apologetic information. I found Mike Ash's book. Um, I think a month or two months later, um, Laura Hale's book 
came out, uh, Reason for Faith, that had supposedly had the very best apologetics on a whole bunch of different issues. I was consuming large volumes of information. I thought that maybe if I could find answers for the difficult things, then my wife wouldn't have to study them because I could just say, um, I found this mess, but then here's the answer to the mess. That's, that's interesting that you say that because I want to, uh, since, since this is about mixed faith, you know, we kind of want to explore mixed faith in this episode because that's something sure. we haven't talked about on our on our show before. Um, I, I did a very slow roll as I as I talked about. I, I took four years and, and as I started finding things, I said, I'm going to I'm going to very carefully. I'm going to take the New Testament, the Old Testament, the 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 Book of Mormon and then the, the Doctrine and Covenants and stuff. And I'm going to study each one, but I'm not going to use church sources. I'm going to use other sources that may have nothing to do with them, but I'm going to compare those sources and see what they say and overlay them and see, compare and contrast and see if, if the truth overlays each other and, and supports each other. So I started doing that. And as I did, so I'd sometimes bring stuff up to my wife, but I, I, I didn't want to concern her or bother with things as they'd start bothering me, you know, and after it was all over and I, you know, it was at the end where I kind of came up and said, I've made a decision that this is, this is, you know, I've, I've lost my faith. And she kind of at the end looked at that as why didn't you share this with me all along? Why didn't you, you know, bring me along with this? And this was, this is years later that, you know, I got this because as I would share it, she'd kind of say, oh, I don't know that I, you know, how do you know that? Or, you know, so I kind of got the feel she doesn't want to know this. I, I shouldn't bring this up. I'll just leave it. Whereas you kind of took the tech, I'll, I'll share it with her right up front. And, you know, I don't know what the right way is. You know, I was trying to protect her in one, in one hand and maybe it backfired on me, uh, but by doing it that way. Uh, but I, I don't know, do, do, do you do have a opinion on that? what yes. the right way to do that is. Yeah. I, I mean, when I was in grief, I was raging, I was angry and I felt betrayed. And so I would want to vent about stuff. Right. And finally, uh, and she felt like she needed to support me. Right. And so we would have conversations and I would talk about, you know, what I was learning in Todd Compton's book about polygamy or something like that. Or I would read I'd read a quote to her from Heber C. Kimball about, you know, how much thought he puts into adding a, a wife or things like that. And, um, and sometimes those would become wounding conversations. So again, this will give you an idea of the, the emotional maturity of my wife is that I think it was probably a month and a half in, she said, you know, I, I know this is real for you and I know you need to process it. And I know you need to vent about it, but it can't be with me. I, I need you to go find people or groups that you can talk about and process this thing kind of stuff with them and vent about it. Um, so that when we're together, like that, we're not talking about this, that you're, we're just spouses, you know, that you're my husband and I'm your wife. And, um, and I'm like, how, how do you even do that? you know, later that day, or maybe it was a day or two after we were on a walk and I, and I asked her, I'm like, how, how can you support me in 
my quest to try to understand all this stuff when I'm coming to these conclusions that are contrary to what your beliefs are? How, how can you support me? How can you do that? And she said, well, it's like our son. I, I don't think that he chose to be gay and I trust my son and I trust God. And I trust that God wouldn't want our son to live a life absent emotional intimacy. Um, and so I trust my son and I trust God and I trust that it all work out in the end. And that's how I feel about you. And I was such a concrete linear thinker. I'm like, how do you even do that? Right. But, but she, she did. And, and obviously, obvious, she definitely experienced grief and she experienced shifts too. Um, because she had these ideals of us being temple ordinances workers together and going on missions and, you know, to having the priesthood and the home and things like that. Um, so she definitely grieved. And it, there were times that we, our conversations were pretty wounding, but, but over time setting that boundary of, you know, these are things that we'll talk about and these things that we're not going to talk about. And I trust you to go find people to help you process and talk about did, things. Did you find church leaders as one of those outlets? Because I tried that and I didn't find that helpful because they, you know, I, that, that was kind of our solution was, you know, once I finally did, you know, we found I couldn't really, cause, cause I would, I was the same as you. I was angry and yeah. she, it wasn't good for your relationship. So uh, she said, let's, you know, tell the bishop, but I didn't want to tell the bishop. Cause I said, once I tell the bishop, it's the cat's out of the bag. You know, you're, you're mm -hmm. not going to get any more callings. You're not going to get, you know, once you, once you tell the bishop, it's kind of, uh, you know, game up. So when I finally did tell the bishop, then he's telling me, well, I want you to read the book of Mormon more. And I'm like, don't you understand? Every time I read the Book of Mormon, I'm finding more things that are causing me problems. Yeah. Uh, so this is not helping me. And by the time I was just, by the time I finally met Rebecca, I was just like, I was like, I need somebody to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> he was a furious, hot mess. <laughs> yes, I need yeah. someone who can understand this. That's yeah. not going to tell me to read the Book of Mormon. <laughs> yeah, so I can understand why you like my TED Talk now. Um <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so my Bishop had been a friend for quite a while still is, uh, and, and I told him that I needed a calling for a faithful non-believer. And so he called me to be assistant scoutmaster and, uh, released me, uh, within a couple of weeks, as soon as he could find somebody to be ward mission leader. Um, and I counseled with him, at least once, usually two to three times a week, uh, when I was in those early stages. And there are a few things is one is, um, that may is like my slow time of the year. Like most of my clients are retired in the last three, four months of the year. I do year end, uh, tax and cash flow planning for the next year by, by April, I've done, you know, all the reviews that I need to do to help people prepare to, have do their file their income taxes with their tax accountant um and so i may is like that's when i go off-roading like with my jeep or rock buggy or something like that or um and so i had all this free time and the way that i consume information is i consume large large volumes of information like i was reading a lot i was probably spending over 12 
15 hours a day, different days, at least I, on the weekend. I was. I have to say, days. we we watched your uh, video and you were listing all the books. Yeah. And our book club has read probably half of those books. We were going, this guy's got all, he, he right. knows yes, some he good does. books. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, so so um, my bishop was really supportive the best that he could be. But by the by the time we were really talking about things, there was such a knowledge gap that that there was really nothing that he could do to answer you know, the apologetic type questions. And I was already reading all of the fair Mormon, you know, or traditional apologetic stuff, as well as the Givens stuff and Adam Miller's and Thomas McConkie's book came out in 2016 or so. Um, so, so I was already, there was just such a huge knowledge gap and, and neither he or one of my closest friends was my stake president. And I visit with him too. Um, no one could tell me why I had spiritual witnesses of partially or entirely inaccurate things. And no one had really counseled with someone like me to the extent that they could say the reason that you experienced God leaving the corner of the room where you knew him is because it was traumatic to have your, an existential crisis and so as a protective measure, your body didn't accept or experience elevation emotion or transcendent connection or whatever, because you were in trauma and you were experiencing disassociation. And so as you heal from the grief and the trauma, then you'll be again to feel those kinds of experiences again, to which you attributed meaning as the Holy Ghost or the spirit. Um, but it won't, you won't that won't happen again until you be, until you heal enough so that you can feel those things again. Like they didn't have the words or the experience to say that. And even if they did, then, then they're, then they're attributing different meanings to those spiritual experiences of transcendent grace, connection, love, peace, joy. Um, uh, and so they couldn't answer those questions. And when I would talk to apologists, they couldn't answer those questions too. It, it actually took someone who it took people who had gone through existential crisis and experienced Gina Colvin refers to it as God leaving the corner of the room where you always knew him. Um, it took people that ha had that experience to be able to fully empathize with what I had experienced and, and to kind of talk me through uh, whether I would have those experiences again. So how how did that uh, with your with your uh, marriage at that time in your mixed faith? Because this is where we started looking for how do we deal with this? I believe differently than you do now, mm. and how how do we deal with this? I, I'm still going to church, trying mm. to look the part, I guess, because we've got kids, you know, and they're. They're still going. And obviously you, you only get one chance. If you tell your kids, dad doesn't believe anymore. Uh, that's they, they now start saying, Oh, well, maybe I don't, you know, they start questioning. So th that's a big tell once you tell your kids. And so I'm still going, trying to decide what I'm going to do. And, and, you know, I didn't feel it was fair 
that, you know, we, we started down this road that we were going to raise our family this way. And it's not fair for me to tear that apart. I've got kids who are dating and, you know, the one's getting ready to go on a mission and he's got a girlfriend and are they going to get married in the temple? All this, you know, I don't, I don't feel like that's my place to undo that. So I'm trying to fly under the radar and make it just my thing. But at the same time, I, I don't believe it. And I'm, how do I disassociate myself? And I can't find any program or any help for how do I deal with this in my, in my marriage? Where were you and what did you do in that situation? Yeah. So, um, so to answer what your earlier question is, is if someone was new into it, I would say, um, from my experience, I would say to let your spouse know on the front end that you're experiencing shifts in faith. Um, and, and then to express, if you want to understand what I'm experiencing, I'm, I'm happy to let you know what you could read or watch or listen to. But I'm, if you don't want to, that's okay too. Uh, and to not, my my suggestion is to not spend very much time in the weeds of the issues. Like don't like quote the Heber C. Kimball quote about how much he thinks about adding another wife uh, kind of thing. <laughs> oh, um, but why not? Yeah. <laughs> why not? <laughs> That's a horrible quote. Oh my yeah, God. it is a horrible quote. He thinks uh, more about, what did he say? He thinks more about buying buying a yeah, cow. Buying a cow. Yeah, yeah puts more thought into puts choosing more a cow. And then, than yeah. adding another wife, yeah. Oh, he received. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think it's helpful to let people let a spouse know up front that I'm experiencing a shift, but to not rage about the weeds. Uh, if, if that spouse isn't in a place in their life, uh, or has a desire to unpack the same weeds basically, uh, is how I feel about it. So it's being transparent, uh, and sharing, these are the emotions and experiences that I'm having, uh, as opposed to processing the weeds of the information. Um, so I'd back up and I would say, um, my wife and I are built very, very differently. Like we were so infatuated. Uh, we were married within nine and a half months of meeting. And, um, when we got married, we took like these quizzes, compatibility quizzes, and every single one said, you absolutely should not get married. And we're like, Oh, we'll be fine. Right. <laughs> So um, whether it was the color code or other kinds of things, we're just built so very, very differently. I'm a very linear, concrete thinker, extrovert, uh, consume large volumes of information. And uh, at least when I was younger, I had a really, really good memory. And so um, my wife uh, got a master of fine arts degree in modern dance uh, She's very artistic, very nuanced, very creative, extremely empathetic, introvert, very, very different than, than I was. So during our marriage, we had to put in work of differentiation. Like, for example, um, when we found the five love languages, as for me, it was helpful because it was a vocabulary or conceptual framework to describe what our experiences were. And so for me, love and emotional intimacy included 
my wife holding me as I'm waking up in the morning or sitting with me on the couch and holding my hand or slapping me on the behind when I'm walking down the hall, it's physical touch. And then it's words of affirmation. So it's, it's um, seeking to understand my experience. It's expressing kind and encouraging words. It's expressing gratitude. And so that's how I would experience. That's how I'd experience. And that's how I would communicate love and emotional intimacy to my wife and my wife her primary love language is quality time, which isn't helpful for someone who's in grad school and then building a new business, you know, as having a spouse. Um, so her primary love language is quality time. So uh, playing board games, going on walks together, even doing the dishes together can be a love, act, you know, experience because it's a together activity. And then, uh, so quality time and then acts of service. So for her, there's love in taking the garbage out, uh, where for me, like if she never made my favorite cookies, I would never feel unloved. Right. But if I made her favorite thing, like that's a, and cleaned up afterwards, like that would be a big deal. So well, you are speaking my language right there. That there you go. Nice, I think we have a lot in common. I, yeah, <laughs> that yes. sounds like heaven. Yeah. There you go. So so um, we put in a significant amount of work uh, earlier in our marriage, like seven to 10 years of being married, uh, learning to become multilingual with the five love languages. And we uh, initially experienced a lot of heartache of that differentiation of how we expressed and received emotional intimacy. But over time, it didn't become a painful thing because... Um, when my wife would see me going out of my way to express love and emotional intimacy to her in ways that are meaningful to her, she could tell that I was not only being attentive, but I was being intentional about doing those things. And when she would do those things for me, same thing. And so because we're so different and because we put in differentiation work, for example, with the five love languages, that gave us kind of a foundation that we could draw upon when we differentiated with regard to our spiritual and religious beliefs. So yeah, it sounds like you and your wife are just amazing communicators and starting at that baseline, it's no wonder that you were able to navigate through what came next. So I'm, I'm curious what outside sources you found. We talked about how now you were not able really to talk to the religious leaders on the level that maybe you needed. Who did you find? What did you find? I think that's a big question. Yeah, that's a big question. So early on, uh, ex-Mormon Reddit was too sharp for me. Mormon Stories podcast community on Facebook was too sharp for me. Um, and in uh, a podcast episode, it was either a Mormon Matters or a, a Gina Colvin, a Thoughtful Faith podcast episode. They One of them mentioned the A Thoughtful Faith Facebook group as a place for people who experienced a shift in faith, but they were, they're now called waters of Mormon for the listener viewer. Um, but as a place for someone who wants to remain productively engaged in the church, in spite of a shift in faith. And so I, and they do heavy vetting and it's a heavily moderated group too, so that it can, so that it can be helpful and safe for people that who were like me in the beginning, right? So I joined uh, the A Thoughtful Faith group, which is now Waters of Mormon. And that group was really helpful for me. And that's how Lindsay Hansen Park found me. Um, she's uh, 
the creator of the year of polygamy podcast, uh, which, uh, everybody should listen to at least the first, I don't know, hundred episodes of year of polygamy at the very least. Um, and she's now the executive director of Sunstone and, uh, organizes the, the annual Salt Lake city Sunstone symposium, uh, and then coordinates with, uh, the magazine and things like that. Anyway, she was visiting her best friend in Billings, Montana, and I had just barely posted, you know, how much I was in the dark night of the soul. I was like six weeks in and she's like, no way I'm in Billings. Like, let's go to breakfast tomorrow. And so, uh, I think it was probably on a Friday morning at an IHOP over pancakes and, uh, French toast. I like, I've told my story in person with, for the first time with someone who could fully hold it and experience. And she had certainly heard hundreds maybe thousands over the years of stories like mine, but she held my story as if it was the first and only one she had ever held uh, and listened to. And she, uh, it, it was just extremely healing to feel validated, you know, and, and for her to be able to use words to explain what my experience was, even though I didn't have the words for them. Like she's, she said something like, you know, it probably feels like you're sinking in quicksand, but you're actually standing on solid ground, you know, and the grief that you feel and the anger you feel is part of what will burn the ground to prepare it for new growth. And you get to decide what that is in the future. Um, so she had those words from all the work and other conversations that, that she had gone through. And she told me, you, just, you need to come to Sunstone. I'm like, isn't that for like nerdy fringy people? And she's like, yeah, you'll fit right in. <laughs> like and, us, that's right. <laughs> right. And so, um, so at the end of J the last week of July, uh, I went down to Salt Lake City. I live in Billings, Montana. It's about a nine hour, nine to 10 hour drive to Salt Lake. And um, that week, the water, what is now Waters of Mormon did uh, a meetup with like a little bit of a buffet. It's not really a dinner, but it was my dinner that night. And uh, Gina Colvin talked about the feminine divine that day. And that made me uncomfortable because I'm like, we're not supposed to talk about this, are we? <laughs> That's a little too far out there, right? right oh yeah. my goodness. Gina's and, wonderful though. <laughs> yes. And uh, there were all these amazing people there and uh, who had supported me in that group what is now waters of Mormon group. Um, and, uh, uh, Geralee Renshaw is one of the head moderators of the group. And, and, and I asked her, I'm like, well, I feel it again. Well, I feel God again. She's like, I don't know, Anthony, everyone's journey is different, but regardless, we're here for you. And that was a big deal. And then the next day, uh, John Dolan had a faith crisis support workshop that he was doing. Uh, usually he would do like a two-day workshop, but he was cramming it all in one day because it was the day before Sunstone started. And uh, and Gina Colvin and Thomas McConkie also attended that workshop because they were considering doing workshops together. And so it was a small group. Maybe there were only 12 people. Probably it was a money loser. Uh, probably didn't even make enough money to pay for the room. But well, like it was life changing for me to be in that group with those people with uh john and and uh, and gina and thomas and thomas's uh fiance and then for the balance of the week i went to the sunstone symposium and 
went to every session that I could related to communicating across faith and belief and what to do in your faith crisis. And I spoke with Jody England Hansen and Kimberly Anderson. Like I had never really engaged with in conversation with a, a transgender woman before. And, and, and she listened to my story and she held me in her arms and told me that I was going to be okay. And, introduced me to the mama dragons people. It, it was amazing. And that's what it took that week is what it took to help me uh, exit the dark night of the soul. Um, and over time, I, I ended up growing beyond that group. I stayed in the group probably a half a year longer than I probably should have, but um, I stayed in the group because of the relationships that I developed and they helped me and they gave me a soft landing. Um, but then from there going forward, I created my own local Mormon spectrum group. I found other people in my area who actually were going through the same thing I was. Um, uh, one person in the, what is now waters of Mormon, his name was, uh, his name is Brian Whitney. And he was kind of the resident historian in the group. He had been involved in the church history department, uh, while he was in school, I think it was an inter internship or maybe it was an employment position, but he was involved in the different uh, development of some of the essays. And one thing that he told me is that there's a lot of critical information all out there. There's a lot of different information out there. And I wanted to know whether, how do you know whether something is reliable or not? And he said, well, if it's been nominated for an award by the Mormon history association or the John Whitmer history association, then, then it probably is something that's reliable enough to look at. And so when I, when I built my book list or my queue of the things that I would read, um, I, I took that into consideration. And so that affected some of the books uh, that I bought and, and read. And then the, when it came time, Landon, you talked about biblical scholarship and stuff like that after I had deconstructed enough of Mormonism that the next step was to deconstruct scriptures and biblical history and biblical scholarship. And uh, one of my close friends here who did talk with me, he was one of the few that reached out to me to see if I was okay. Uh, he had a, his, his brother was a religion professor at BYU at the time. Now he teaches in the classics and he said, well, my brother told me that if I really want to unpack this stuff, I should start reading Bart Ehrman and start with misquoting Jesus. That's where I went. Yep. Bart yeah. Ehrman. <laughs> yeah. So that, you so guys that have was a lot in common. <laughs> yeah. So that was the first one. So, so I transitioned from de my faith crisis kind of started with church history and the recognition that my spiritual experiences were something other than what the meaning that I attributed to them before. They were something different than that. Um, and I would, and I kind of say that my faith crisis pretty much ended. Uh, I still had grief work to do. I, I still had trauma to process. I, I still had to reconstruct what my moral frameworks would be and things like that. But my faith crisis, I think, pretty much ended by studying biblical scholarship because when I found out about how the five books attributed to Moses were developed and who wrote the Bible. Did you who, read that one? Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Oh, book. Richard, Richard yep. Elliott Freeman. Yep. Richard yep. Elliott. Yep. Absolutely. Spectacular. <laughs> and, book. Yes. Yeah. And so when I unpacked that and, and the implications of that for restoration scripture, 
and for restoration theology that really my view foundationally relies on the literal yep, historicity on all of it. it a, a, a lot down. of the, yeah. 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 So, um, uh, and, and then, and then Bart Ehrman and other biblical scholars about new Testament yep. stuff, which again, like it made it so interesting. Like the, the Bible's a beautiful book when you realize that's what we kept saying. It is. Yeah. So, once you understand how it's written, yeah. you go, this is so yeah. awesome to understand now that you know yeah. how to read it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I think probably one of the biggest things was the recognition that, you know, when, when, when Dallin Oaks gives a talk uh, in general conference, he's expressing his, political, theological, philosophical, and rhetorical goals and concerns about today. Yes. Right. And, and he might, you know, draw on different sources and he might even include, you know, reference to poetry and other kinds of things in a talk. I mean, some of the general authorities do that. And if, if someone 200 years from now reads a Dallin Oaks talk, and find some sort of connection uh, or meaning as it as to what they're experiencing 200 years from now, they might perceive that Dallin Oaks was intentionally prophesying about the future 200 years from now, but he wasn't. His talk was about today. And, and when in studying scriptures in realizing that the texts that are in the Bible are that, they are the the writer or the redactor expressing their philosophical, theological, and rhetorical and, and other political. concerns, <laughs> uh, political <laughs> concerns, especially political, political <laughs> ab- about about their day. Yeah, and and um, sometimes people later would like whoever wrote Matthew perceived that Isaiah was intending to prophesy about Jesus. Yeah. And maybe Jesus perceived that the book of Daniel or Isaiah or Ezekiel had something to do with, you know, themes of Jesus's concern, or maybe it was just the writers who wrote about Jesus that perceived that. But that doesn't mean that Isaiah ever intended to write about or, or second Isaiah who wrote in the name of Isaiah during or after the exile intended to be about Jesus. It was, they were writing about what their concerns were in that day, right? And and when there's prophecy in the scriptures that's accurate, it's because it's backdated prophecy. It's like written after the fact. That's how we know when the book of Daniel was written is yeah. it's super specific <laughs> on all these prophecies and they're super accurate. And then around and then, 167 yeah. BCE, they become more general, and then the prophecies are wrong. And that's how yeah. you know when it was written. Kind of like a book uh, that prophesies all this specific stuff about Columbus and Joseph Smith is in, and all these specific things about the righteous Gentiles and the pilgrims and everything until about 100 and about 1829. And then the prophecies become more general. And then they're wrong. They're wrong. And that's yeah. how you know when the Book of Mormon so w- mysterious. W- w- was written. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I, I want to so. ask you, because one of our uh, one of the things that I got uh, from you was one of our book club members actually posted it uh, was you you gave a, a great little speech. And it was only about eight minutes long on 
uh, mixed faith marriages uh, and how you dealt with with that and some some ideas for how to do that. And that yeah. struck me because of the fact that we couldn't find anything. <laughs> we were going through it. Uh, yeah. We eventually found Alan Mount and Katie Mount, Marriage on a Tightrope. We took Natasha Helfer. They they had her in and they we, we took a course with them, uh, which was helpful. But by the time we found it, it was probably a little too late because we'd already gone through so many of the things that the course was for. We'd already gone through and said, oh, well, we screwed that up. You know, we did that wrong. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it, It's funny Hindsight. because there's the, the church has no, no course. If you're mixed faith, you know, it's like the second one of the spouses leaves, there's no program. You know, the, the yeah. program's only if you're together. The second one of you leaves, there's no program. But uh, you you have some really great ideas. And and she shared that uh, on our book club Facebook, yeah. I think, or maybe she put yeah, it on her did. own, but I, I saw that. You, you want to go over some of those ideas? Yeah. So I would, so I had mentioned, mentioned that, um, when I uh, was, I think I was on the high council at the time, I was also a merit badge counselor for the personal management. And there was this kid that I was his marriage badge counselor and his name was Matt. And Matt eventually married a person named Sarah. And if you are familiar with Natasha's group, Sarah Hughes-Zabawa is, is in that group. And it turned out that Sarah ended up moving to Billings because that's where her husband has come from. So her husband was like, I was his merit badge counselor. Anyway, so Sarah is a therapist and she is extremely insightful when it comes to dealing with mixed faith marriage kinds of things. And she co-leads uh, our local group, Mormon Spectrum group. Oh, okay. And so... Um, a significant amount of what I, what was helpful is there was a, there is still as a Facebook support group called uh, Mormon mixed faith marriages. Although they might have, they might have renamed it because Mormons a major victory for Satan kind of thing. But, <laughs> um, but there's that one and the mounts were in that group in Facebook too. And so I learned a lot from other people there. I learned a lot from Sarah because she's a therapist. Uh, and then I've learned a lot uh, from the the Mount's journey and the participation of others there. And then as part of my deconstruction, uh, material from Brene Brown was super helpful for me. And she talks a lot about uh, differentiation and setting boundaries and holding space for people and things like that. And so, so uh in any event, those are things, in addition to the work that my wife and I had done before, uh, related to, uh, I just spilled my water, um, <laughs> related to um, differentiation about the five love languages, um, uh, we found other resources that we could read or share together um, that helped us in our mixed faith marriage. There's another person who, uh, her name is Chris. Christy Money, Dr. Christy Money. She's been on Mormon Stories before, and she ran the Mormon Transitions podcast under the Open Stories Foundation for a period of time. And she wrote uh, a PDF about a uh, mixed faith marriage workbook. And so we used that as well. So that was, that was helpful. 
so those are all things that help. But um, I, I pulled up uh, what I put in that seven and a half minute video and I can kind of walk through some of those things and comment about it if that would. You'd yeah, like and we'll, we'll oh, put absolutely. a link to that as well because it's, it's short and, and well done. There were several points yeah. in there that I said, God, I wish I'd have thought of that. <laughs> yeah. And it's so relevant. It's so yeah. relevant. There are so many people that are going through it or anticipating that this may happen or right in the middle of it. So absolutely relevant. So we're excited all right. to hear. Yeah. So uh, in the, in the seven and a half minute video, a little bit less than seven and a half minutes, I share five things that have been really significant for us. Um, and one of the first suggestions that I got early on was to double and triple down on expressions of emotional intimacy to my spouse and her primary love languages. Um, and the reason why that was so important is in order for my wife, I mean, she had enough nuance that I'm, she probably could have done this anyway, but in order for my wife to be able to distinguish between our marital relationship and our ceiling and that our marriage still had value, even if I stepped away from the church, it was helpful to be able to go out of my way to express love and emotional intimacy to my wife so that she could feel confident in my love for her. And she could see that even though I was in deep grief and I was processing all this painful stuff, I was really, really going out of the way, my way to be as attentive as I could and express love and emotional intimacy to her in quality time and acts of service. And she noticed that. Um, and that was, and our marriage got like really a lot better, you know, imagine that if I really went out of my way to try to make my marriage better so that my wife felt more love for me, um, from me. But at the same time, what helped is my, she responded, because uh, we had put in the love languages work before, she responded in my love languages as well, which helped me feel more connected to her so that as it was easier for me to differentiate or distinguish her from the church. So if I was raging or upset about, you know, President Nelson saying that our son and his partner's love is from Satan kind of thing um, to not take it out on my wife. Right. Because the church or President I, I think Nelson that's the key. It's so easy to, to associate your, your spouse with the church, with the church. And they're part of the church. Uh, yeah. and, and that's that I, I hadn't even thought about that till you said that yeah. in that thing, but you do, you, you associate them and you've got that anger against the church and it's hard to, Sometimes it's hard to separate it. And, yeah. and I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And so that was, that was the first thing it was, it was huge to double and triple down on emotional expressions of emotional intimacy uh, so that our marriage could get better and it could be independent of our faith. Um, so the second thing that I suggest is in that video is that to use a spiritual values exercise or some other similar method to identify our common uh, as well as our differentiated spiritual values, preferences, and interests. So Dr. Christy Money's workbook does something similar to that. Um, and then Sarah Hughes Zabawa, if you go to, if you search Sarah Hughes Zabawa Symmetry Solutions, you'll find uh, her website. And on her website, she has a PDF that you can download. I'll, I'll send you a link so you can include it in, in the notes that's an exercise to go through and identify what your spiritual uh, values are. 
And, and part of that is to find where there's crossover so that you can nourish those things. And so my, my wife and I, uh, share spiritual values of, uh, doing service to others and charitable work. Um, we find value, uh, in music. We find value in nature, hiking, camping, uh, off-roading, biking, things like that. Um, and then she enjoys some of the things that I've found helpful for me as, uh, as I've sought to develop spirituality, uh, as a post believing church member where I found value from Krista Tippett's on being podcast, um, books from Brene Brown, things about secular Buddhism, like from Jack Cornfield's Buddhism for Beginners, Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth, uh, Brian Noah McLaren. Rochetta, he's got good stuff. Noah Rochetta is good. Um, and more recently, Brian McLaren uh, wrote the book Faith After Doubt, uh, and he has a podcast called Learning How to See. So, so those are things that we could share and listen to together, um, where we, we wouldn't listen to a Mormon stories episode together. We wouldn't listen to year of polygamy together. Uh, but we would listen to a Brian McLaren book together. We would listen to on being podcast together. Um, one of the things that, that we did is, um, there, there was, there's a woman that, uh, uh, she lived in this 1956 or 57, old rundown trailer home with her dis adult disabled daughter and her da adult disabled daughter was the same age as our son. And when I was high priest group leader, we would go over and we'd try to level this thing, you know, because when the wind would blow, maybe if you open the window, it wouldn't close again. And, and we would uh, re tar the roof and we do maintenance on it and stuff like that. And eventually I thought, you know, our, our ward has means like maybe we can raise money to buy this, this family, a, a different, a new trailer home. Right. Uh, for them to put on the lot that they own. And the husband was not interested in that. I, I don't know if it just felt emasculating to him or something, but he just wasn't okay with that idea. So early in my faith crisis, um, I found out that he had Alzheimer's and was in a nursing home. And this woman uh, lived in our stake, but in a, in a different ward due to ward boundary changes. And when I found out that uh, the husband was in uh, in a nursing home, um, I'm like, oh, we can we can do this now. We can we can get this woman and her uh, and her uh, adult disabled daughter. We can get them a new home. And so I talked with my wife about it. And because I'm a financial planner and have relationships with attorneys and so forth, I came up with a plan where we'd create an irrevocable trust and we would raise money. Uh, uh, as donations to this trust, it wouldn't be tax deductible, but that wouldn't matter. Um, I'd get uh, two people to be co-trustees of the of the trust. A woman would be the main trustee, and then uh, a former Relief Society president for this woman was the main trustee, and then the woman's home teacher was the co-trustee. Um, and we'd raise money so that this trust could buy a new replacement trailer home. And so if if the woman died before the husband, there wouldn't be Medicaid recovery because the husband was on Medicaid in the nursing home. And the do adult disabled daughter, we wanted to protect it, you know, in case she was on Medicaid someday. 
So we ended up, uh, my wife and I ended up introducing this to the woman and asked if she would be okay if we did this. And she uh, was very grateful for that. In fact, had been praying for it. So it was answer to prayer thing. And uh, so we raised uh, over $26,000. Um, I was able to engage my believing friends for, uh, in a way where uh, maybe they didn't refer to me as the apostate as much anymore <laughs> because um, they, some donated money. They, they helped me, you know, move stuff into an enclosed trailer to, to, to stage it. And then, and then I got, uh, some contractors, members of the church, non-members of the church to help do dirt work and electrical work and plumbing work and so forth. And so we, we got this woman and, uh, and her adult disabled daughter, a new home and bigger, more energy efficient, the whole thing. So, so that was an example of the kinds of things where those are shared spiritual values that my wife and I have of doing charitable work of service to others. And, and so there are sometimes that she does charitable work and sometimes I do charitable work, but we also seek to do joint kinds of things together. And so we find that. So the shared, the spiritual values exercise idea is, just, is to try to find things that you have that you can share and nourish together and recognize that you're going to have things that are differentiated as well. So that was the second thing. Wow. What a labor of love. That's absolutely yeah, incredible story. That's thank amazing. You. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was very, very helpful uh, uh, to be a part of it. And, and I'm super grateful that we did that and it continues to, to be a benefit for, for that woman and her daughter today. So the third thing that I, that I share is to think of black licorice as a metaphor and I, and I share, my wife loves black licorice and I can't stand it. I, I think it's awful, but she likes it. I'm but, in your camp. <laughs> there you go. Like, yeah. And some people who love it, they just like love it. But um, what, what I explained is that neither of us experience any sort of emotional or spiritual turmoil or pain over our, our differentiated preferences for black licorice, right? It's just black licorice. Um, and then I explained in the video is that of course, as human beings, we enmesh in our sense of identity uh, and our being uh, things that are a lot deeper or entangled with our ego than like black licorice. And it can be a lot more painful to different have differentiated preferences about things that uh, go way beyond black licorice. But from a Buddhist standpoint, the idea perhaps is in the end, it's all just black licorice, right? And so, um, so while it's not always easy to, to be okay that your spouse likes something a lot worse than black licorice, uh, <laughs> worse is the wrong word, a lot more painful, differentiated, um, in, in the end, it, it's okay if, if, if I thrive and grow having a conversation with you, with doing my TEDx talk, and it's not something that's meaningful for my wife, and she thrives and grows in things that I wouldn't, it wouldn't be helpful for me to be a part of. That's okay, because it's just, in the end, it's all just black licorice. Did I freeze? You did, yes. 
I can't tell, but you're still talking. Yeah, so. I'm still talking. <laughs> okay. You're still talking. So I think that's okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, all right. So the fourth, the fourth thing is, uh, huh. Let me stop and then start again. We'll see if it comes Probably up. something. That's right. We'll see. Yeah. All right. So the fourth thing is, uh, um, and I got this from uh, marriage on tightrope uh, discussion. And what it was is it's important to talk about your biggest and deepest fears with each other. Um, so that you can face them together and not catastrophize those, those fears or concerns. And so um, my wife's uh, biggest fears included that if I could change how I felt about the church, which I deeply loved, and it was completely enmeshed in my identity and being, if I could just randomly or all of a sudden change how I felt about the church, maybe I could change how I felt about her. And that was uh, of concern to her. Um, also, uh, what she had a concern is that I might develop emotional and spiritual intimacy with people in support groups that included women, um, and that, that she might end up losing me, uh, to another relationship if, because I develop love and spiritual intimacy with people and support groups, right? No. And those are all legitimate, uh, legitimate things that people worry about. Absolutely. And it's uncharted right. waters. You have no idea. Sometimes you jump to the worst case scenario, but then again, it's grounded in real thoughts, real emotions, real fears. So I, I can completely understand that. One of her biggest fears was that as I renegotiated and reconstructed moral and behavioral boundaries, that there could be problems for our marriage. And so, um, uh, when someone goes through a faith deconstruction, they also deconstruct what is the source of their morals yeah. and what will it be in the future. And sometimes when people are processing grief or a faith transition, they want to test behavioral boundaries that can get people in trouble. You know, like if you're processing a lot of grief and you drink a lot of alcohol, it's probably not going to be helpful, you know. Uh, or to test behavioral boundaries with regards to sexuality, like people tend to do in college, doing that in your 40s probably is not going to be helpful. And so she was concerned uh, that as I renegotiated and reconstructed behavioral and moral boundaries, that, that it could result in problems for our marriage. And, and I, didn't, I didn't consider that something that I would do um, but that was still a fear of hers that it was helpful for her to not catastrophize by herself for us to be able to talk about it. So um, my fears were in many ways similar to hers that she would decide that she couldn't be with me anymore having left the church and, and having my views about the church having changed and that I might resign someday. And so I was fearful that she goes to the temple as an ordinance worker and the narrative or the end conclusion of her participation is that someday she'll be assigned to some other man, you know, who's faithful as a plural wife. Right. And so that was my catastrophizing fear. So um, in the end, it was super helpful for us to talk about each other's biggest fears and work through that and talk through them instead of individually catastrophize them, you know, and as well as to, set boundaries like what what are what are things 
that uh, is a hard boundary for her and what are things that are a hard boundary for me. So um, what she told me when she reviewed this before I put it in video, um, the, the biggest thing I think in terms of talking about our different fears is that we each put in individual work to increase our confidence that we would both be okay, even if we weren't together. And, and that made it possible for our marital relationship to be a choice rather than, you know, a fear of the unknown, uh, if we weren't together. So, and then the fifth thing is we put in work, um, to, uh, and this is another kind of a Buddhist idea is, is to recognize that there are some things that aren't okay and they're probably never going to be okay. So for her as an introvert who loves the church, it's a significant part of her life. For her to be married to me where I left the church and I'm an extrovert and I talk about it publicly, like that's never going to be okay, right? And, and she has made a conscious choice for her in her journey to not unpack or deconstruct the same things that I have. Like she read the gospel topics essays and the cited sources and that's enough for her. She's not going to go any further. And for me, that isn't going to be okay. Cause that feels like, you know, if you know, something's painful for me and you choose to do or not do the thing anyway, that kind of feels abusive to me. Like, wouldn't you just do anything, you know, kind of thing. So, um, uh, in any event, that's how I felt. Um, and so what we arrived at is, is that, acceptance that they're not okay things are going to exist but we want to be with each other strongly enough that we choose for it to be okay that it's not okay and that probably was the biggest inflection point in our marriage when we both talked about it and said you know if we were going to unwind our marriage this is how we would do it we would both be fine financially this is what we would do with the house this is what we would do we'd both be okay. Um, but we choose us and we choose for things to be okay. Uh, we choose for it to be okay, that not okay things exist. Uh, and, and that was probably one of the biggest things. So when I, when I've shared these kinds of things in, uh, like marriage on a tightrope or in the Mormon mixed faith marriage group, like sometimes that like blows people's mind. Like, how can you choose for it to be okay? <laughs> the things that are not okay. Um, but what I've shared with you are a few things is that we had already put in a significant amount of work with regard to differentiation in other things like the five love languages, for example, or how differently we're built where I'm a risk taker and she's a security driven person and things like that. So that by the time we were negotiating these waters, while it didn't make it easy it was still very, very difficult. We had already done some work of differentiation in the past. And so just like it's okay that she likes black licorice um, and just like it's okay that maybe there's different music that she likes than I like, um, we can choose for not okay things to exist, you know, that most people would think would be a deal breaker. And I love the idea that you you took the fear out of it because the fear is such a driver in such a negative way. And you you remove the fear and then you can work emotionally and intellectually and socially together 
to come to the best outcome. So yeah. I absolutely love that, that you were able to do that. That's extremely yeah, you inspiring. Even, said, even if it doesn't work out, we're still okay. Right. That's what I mean. The that, fear that, that is may be the, an option, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yep. There, there are a number of people that I've talked to over the years that, uh, that they're dealing with that question of whether they should end their marriage. And, um, uh, I actually remember sharing this, uh, in Delin's, uh, faith crisis workshop that week of, uh, my first sunstone. And, and that is during the financial crisis, um, you know, when everybody thought the world was going to end and it, for a lot Which of people, time? It, it did, yeah. <laughs> in, in 08, 09, uh, yeah. what I did with clients is I'd ask them, uh, what are the things that keep you up at night? Like, what is the question that keeps you up at night? And an example might be, well, I'm afraid that the, that the financial system's going to collapse, that the dollar won't be the world reserve currency anymore. And that it's just going to, it's just, everything's going to collapse. And so I'd ask, um, okay, well, let's say that happened. What would you do? What would you want? And like one person said, uh, well, I think it'd be really helpful to have a cabin up in the Beartooth mountains uh, with like a well on it. And, you know, I'd have wood you know, that I could use for heat and I could hunt for food and maybe I'd have some food storage up there. Um, and then I wouldn't have to worry about it if, if everything collapsed. And so sometimes I, I would say, okay, let's do it. Like, you don't have enough money right now to just go buy a cabin for that purpose, but let's go find a lot for you. And you can buy a, a hailed out uh, camper trailer and you can park it up there and put some food storage and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's not going to keep you up at night. And so that's that idea. If there's a question that keeps you up at night, answer the question and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. And so that I think is helpful to apply to relationships that if there's a unknown, a question that keeps you up at night of what would happen, would we be okay if we decided to end our marriage? is is to answer the question what would it look like what would you do uh and then you don't have to worry about it anymore so and and some of the people that i've suggested this to in mixed faith uh relationships for some people the better answer for them was to end their marriage you know and for other people that was helpful because the fear of the unknown of of that how that question is answered affected their ability to be close and have intimacy and trust in their relationship because that was that was blocking the fear of the unknown was blocking it so it was helpful for some people to do no i think that's a great exercise and and even for somebody who not a mixed faith marriage situation but even just a faith crisis that whole unknown you almost have to go there and say What's my worst case scenario? How would I handle this? What yeah. will happen? And that's sort of freeing when you let yourself go there, like live in that moment of the worst case scenario, and then you're able to pivot and decide what will I do and make those decisions. So that kind of leads me maybe to one of our last questions about um, your podcast, because I feel like when Landon and I created Mormonish, our tagline, I don't know if too many people are aware because we don't say it often is living a joyful life on the other side of Mormonism. So it really is, 
you know, recovering after whatever period you need, or sometimes it's ongoing, stop and start. But then what do you do next? You know, how do you recover or even, you know, life after reconstruction? I feel like that our, you know, our two podcasts are kind of aligned in that. So maybe tell us how you decided to start that and what's been happening with it and the reaction, because I find it absolutely wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, um, so over the years, um, I've been on Mormon stories, I don't know, more than a dozen episodes. And <laughs> a I've lot. Been, and they're yeah, great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they're and, great. And I've been on uh, Gina Colvin's podcast and Glenn Oslin's Infants on Thrones. And uh, I, I've been on more Mormon Discussions Umbrella. I've been on Almost Awakened podcast. And I did a series with Alan Mount and Bill Reel about the gospel topics essays and invited other people into those conversations as well. And so I knew at some point that I wanted to, to do something more than just be a guest in in the podcast area. Um, But I also knew that I wanted to have conversations with people who, for whatever reason, it would be unhelpful to be underneath the umbrella of Open Stories Foundation uh, or uh, Mormon discussion. So, because I want to have conversations with like BYU professors and active believers and you know, church employees, my understanding is they're not allowed to go on uh, Mormon stories, for example. And so uh, I ended up deciding to do my own podcast called Life After Deconstruction. And and like you, certainly our podcasts uh, rhyme to a certain extent. I, I feel like there's a lot of resource material out there for the deconstruction experience. Like you can listen to a year of polygamy, you know, and you can listen to the LDS discussions series, uh, with Mike, you know, uh, that, uh, he and Dylan and sometimes, uh, Nemo is, is participating in those. There's lots of deconstructive information. And when I looked around and I, and I saw what was available about what you do after deconstruction uh, and the meaning that I'm attributing to deconstruction is, is, is unpacking meaning, not just, dismantling and destroying every single thing until there's nothing, but like trying to figure out what, what we talked about scriptures in the Bible, like, what does that really mean? Or, you know, are we talk, you know, I referred to spiritual experiences to, to really try to figure out where did those come from? Uh, and what did those mean? I'm still trying to figure out some of those things. Um, but I wanted to talk, I wanted to, to have discussions about what happens after a deconstruction, after you've processed the grief and trauma and what do you do going forward? And I, and what I found is that looking around there, there are podcasts and resources that, that deal with those things, but they tend to be prescriptive in nature. Um, And my bias is to take people by the hand and walk them on a journey through discussions with the premise that we're not going to have an agenda of how you should live life after a deconstruction, but I want to have you join me in conversations with other people about how they do it. And then you get to decide what that looks like. And so that's why I decided on the life after deconstruction podcast. And some of the episodes that I've done, I, I did one with uh, Britt Hartley, who uh, has been doing the almost awakened podcast uh, for a period of time. I did an episode with her. I did an episode with uh, Lindsay Hansen Park. I did an episode with Brett about 
what deconstruction means and why it's important and what are the dangers of deconstruction, things like that. Uh, and we talked a little bit about the future of the Firth, the faith and Mormon adjacent kinds of things. And then I did an episode with Lindsay Hanson Park about community because she's, you know, seen uh, the Facebook community. She's seen Mormon uh, a feminist housewives. Exponent two was a large uh, Facebook support group that kind of uh, fell in on itself. And so she's seen quite a few things. And so we talk about community. And then I did an episode with Kaisa Berlin Kafusi. She was, uh, she's a scholar. Uh, she was teaching uh, biblical studies classes for BYU. Um, her father was in the CES. Um, and uh, she had her ecclesiastical endorsement taken away from her bishop because she taught because of what she taught about race and the race in the priesthood essay in in her ward. And so she was immediately fired as an adjunct professor at BYU because he took away her ecclesiastical endorsement. So we, I, we talked about, she did an essay in Chris Kimball's new book, Living on the Inside of the Edge. And we talked about that in her relationship with her father. Um, and so um, I have other people in line to have those kinds of discussions about a variety of different topics. Um, and, um, you know, and today we're talking about uh, mixed faith marriages and relationships, you know, and so I want to have conversations about that too. Yeah, there's really no end to the kinds of conversations or the kinds of questions that come up or the things that are pe that people are going through. So it's wonderful that you're there to kind of help people navigate that. I, I just love it. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's excellent. It's true. Landon, do you have any final no, really thoughts as we sort yeah. of end? We really appreciate your time and, and coming on with this. Uh, uh, our journeys are so similar and I, I, <laughs> love to get to I, I met you at I can't a thrive event or something I got to meet you for just a few minutes but boy we've uh, so many of the your stories are the same as mine and I, I hope we get to run into each other again at some of these events so I really enjoyed talking with you t tonight so. I appreciate that I'm, I'm sure we will see more of each other in person so Maybe I will go golfing or something. Yeah, <laughs> something. Yeah, right. Work yeah. it all out on the golf. Oh course. no, he That's said it. he goes. He's jeeping. Yeah, that, yeah. We go off road. This is true. Thing. Landon yeah. is a huge ATV, ATV wandering. Oh, yep. Right. Nope, yeah. You guys have a lot in common. Yeah, Sand Hollow and Moab, Utah. And, yeah. Yeah, places like that. Yeah. So I am. I uh, I spoke at the St. George Thrive, and then the Thrive Unite Day. I spoke in uh, Idaho Falls. Yeah. Uh, and then um, in June, I'm uh, for some reason, I'm speaking at the Women's Thrive. So apparently oh. I'm the only man there. So oh, that's excellent. What a, no, you're going to be amazing. That's excellent. How, Did you hear that? Everybody, kind. Anthony's coming to Women's Thrive in June. Please put that on your yeah, calendar. This June, will be amazing. June 2nd and 3rd. And then uh, and then I hope to present again. I presented every year uh, since 2018 at uh, Sunstone. So uh, I, I hope to present there uh, at the end of July. And so uh, I'll, I'll be out on the speaking circuit uh, <laughs> talking about different topics. Great. He's going to be around. We will keep all of our viewers informed because 
yeah, we, we love to hear what you have to say and it's always well worth it. So, well, what a wonderful episode. Again, this has just been amazing. We are so thankful to Anthony for coming on and we want to remind all our viewers that everything we've talked about hopefully will be in the links. <laughs> we got to get better at our show notes. We always have so many amazing resources for taking notes and pulling books out and, you know, picking a podcast and things, but we'll do our best to put everything in the links. And of course, all of Anthony's um, links to his podcast, Life After Deconstruction. And and the other things he's involved in. So um, don't forget to like and subscribe and also hit the notification bell if you'd like to be notified when our next episode is up and look for more wonderful, amazing guests in the future. And so we'll say goodnight now from Mormonish. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.